Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, bringing you clear insight every two weeks in an age of increasingly dynamic risk and intensifying connectivity. This week, we're talking about Belarus. As I'm sure many of you already know, Belarus is a country that borders both Russia and the European Union, and for the past 26 years has been run by President Alexander Lukashenko. Belarus held elections on August 9th in a race that, in every time before, Lukashenko won in a landslide. Perhaps you sense a theme. This year looked like it was meant to be different. Lukashenko was facing competition from Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, an almost accidental candidate who was able, with the help of a team of powerful and creative women, to muster tens of thousands of supporters to rallies in the streets in the run-up to the elections. When the moment came, Lukashenko won in yet another landslide that no one is willing to accept as legitimate. Since August 9th, Belarus has been engulfed in civil unrest. What does a medium-sized country in Eastern Europe have to tell us about authoritarianism, geopolitics, Russia, the EU, and just as importantly, companies who are active in the region and beyond? Here to tell us, are a panel of experts who I have the great pleasure of calling colleagues. Joining from London is Emir Casey, a senior analyst in our Global Risk Analysis Division. Hi, Emir. Hi, Chuck. Joining from Moscow is Nabi Abdullayev, a partner in the firm and the head of our Moscow office. Hey, Nabi. Hi, Chuck. And with Nabi in Moscow is Bota Ilyas, an analyst in our Global Risk Analysis Unit. Good morning, Bota. Good morning, Chuck. Let's jump in and tell us a little bit about what the atmosphere was like on August 9th. I'm sure all three of you were absolutely riveted by what was happening in Minsk and beyond. Tell us what went down on the 9th of August. Sure. So I think we probably need to go a little bit further back beyond August 9th to understand why it was such a significant and unusual day for Belarus. And without wanting to go into too many details about the campaign, this was really a very unique election for Belarus. And that was I think we can say primarily because of the impact that the government's handling of the COVID virus had had on public trust and public attitudes towards the long-standing president, Alexander Lukashenko. And as a result of what was, from his point of view, effectively a, a dismissal of the virus altogether and a, a lack of any kind of containment measures or suppression policy, a civil society movement had evolved and developed around a number of opposition candidates that really took on proportions that we hadn't seen in Belarus in several decades. So in the months leading up to August 9th, there were coordinated and, and large-scale campaigns to try and get a couple of opposition candidates registered to stand. None were able to. After that, we saw the emergence of three prominent females, two of the wives of candidates who were unable to stand and one a, a campaign manager, who took it upon themselves to lead this growing anti-government movement with a very simple campaign that simply said, we call for the release of political prisoners and we call for a rerun of any election in which all candidates can stand. And that had generated really a hitherto unseen sense of civil society and, and activism and expectations as a result on August 9th were very high that the leader of that movement, Svetlana Tihanovskaya, should and would post a very strong result, if not a win. I remember watching here 
from London, watching on, on television and watching online, the crowds that Tikhanovskaya, and generally speaking, that the opposition campaign had brought out were unprecedented in Belarus. I mean, if you want to cast your mind way back, I mean, you recall that there was a time during a previous election campaign when gatherings of more than three individuals were illegal in the streets. And here you had gatherings of thousands and thousands of people in the Belarusian summer protesting against an incumbent president that people often called Europe's last dictator. How did that all go down? The protests actually were not so much in support of Tikhanovskaya because, uh, you know, she's not a politician. She is the wife of a jailed blogger who was put into the race on the last moment in order to be a so-called technical candidate, someone whom Lukashenko would easily beat. But the thing is, there is enormous fatigue of Lukashenko and particularly, as Ima said, of his last month's denial of the COVID threats with the effects on the public health and on the local economy. And in the meantime, the manipulations at the elections were so blatant that uh, resulted public outrage that brought people onto the streets. And the thing is that the brutal crackdown on these people by police forces and Belarus is something that actually deserves particular attention, as well as a strategy that was chosen by the protesters in the last weeks. The thing is that we in Russia observe it very closely because this is something that we may face here in 2024 when the current presidential term of President Putin expires and we will be going through a new election cycle. It's a very interesting phenomenon when largely leaderless protests gather, you said thousand. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people on the street, despite very brutal practices employed by local police forces against them. Some observers call it the strategy of water. So the protest is very fluid. It's leaderless. It's everywhere. It's pouring onto the street. And whenever there is a pressure from police or from other government, they kind of leave this place and gather in a different location. I think in addition to the general public frustration with Lukashenko's mishandling of the COVID crisis and also the fact that he did not really have a clear campaign message that would focus on improving the economic conditions, which had been actually stagnating for a long time. There's another dimension, which is that the current movement was basically led by three women, which is also unprecedented in Belarus. Lukashenko was categorically against having a female president in office. And in fact, she stated multiple times throughout the election campaign that a woman would be incapable of running for office and running the country. And I think that this adds an interesting trigger overall. It appears almost as if the society was tired, not just with the poor economy, the mishandling of the virus and Lukashenko's multiple decades in office, but also with his old perceptions of what the president could look like. So what happens is we get hundreds of thousands of people, as Nabi accurately pointed out, on the streets in regular protest in spite of enormous and graphic police brutality. And what we start to hear are comparisons between what's happening in Belarus and what happened on the Maidan in Ukraine. And then you hear about what should the EU do? What should Russia be doing or not be doing? Should the United States be doing something? Will there be an annexation? And I think by and large, we understand that this is a fairly 
inappropriate comparison that the events are different, the context is different, and the whole conjunctura, as you might say in Russian, is different. But nevertheless, Belarus is sandwiched between two considerable military, economic, and political power blocks. Emer, you're sitting in London. How does it look from here? Well, indeed, Belarus has, and Lukashenko in particular, has quite ably, to be honest, over the last couple of decades, played off his relations with Russia and his relations with EU against each other. And as a result, has been able to leverage advantages and favours from each, depending on how relations with the other are going. That strategy is has run out uh, to a degree. The EU has, I think, countered to some expectations, been able to relatively quickly get a consensus that it will impose some sanctions in the form of asset freezes and travel bans against senior Belarusian officials who were either involved in the problematic election, involved in the post-election crackdown, or involved in the kind of administration of the state generally. Those have been more or less confirmed and we're expecting them to be rolled out in the next couple of weeks. In some respects, it, it represents a sort of a diplomatic achievement, given that there were initially a number of concerns that certain members of the EU, in particular Hungary, as cited, would be reluctant to impose any kind of sanctions whatsoever. There's little indication that there's any intention to go further than that, and there's been no discussion whatsoever of financial sanctions targeting companies, targeting trade, or targeting broader business relations with Belarus. The US has actually been more reticent and more silent than the EU in the past, where the US would have a more aggressive sanctions policy on Belarus and did indeed have a number of large state and entities sanctioned. That looks very unlikely. And at best, we're expecting the US to, to follow those sanction individuals once the EU imposes them. Emir, you've mentioned the S word, sanctions, and potential implications for business. And we want to elaborate on that theme more. But before we do that, I do want to go back to Moscow and back to Bota and Nabi, because everybody wants to know what Putin is going to do about this. And I'm wondering what you're hearing, what your own analysis shows, and what your views are on the next move from Moscow in relation to what's happening in Belarus. As uh, Ima said, Lukashenko had multi-vector politics before. So he tried to play with the EU, with the United States, with China, with Russia. And the thing is that after what happened is only vector, remaining vector is Russia. If it happens so that he fails to deal effectively with the protests, and it looks like so because they do not vanish. And also the legitimacy of his rule is seriously contested internally. And after all these brutal beatings of thousands of people, after all the reports about all these brutalities, it will be really difficult for him to be seen and to exercise his power as of a legitimate ruler. I think that we will see as a kind of most probable scenario, the gradual absorption of Belarus by Russia. It may not be Belarus becomes part of the Russian Federation. It may have different forms. It can be union state. Belarus may stay as if as a sovereign power. But today, for example, Belarus foreign policy is done by the Kremlin. Lukashenko does not pick phone when uh, Macron or Merkel call him. And when they want to discuss Belarus, they call Putin. And this process will only accelerate. And the main variable here is time when it happens. So when Kremlin will start appointing governors in Belarus. 
even if Belarus would be some kind of a separate entity and when the Kremlin will be appointing KGB chiefs in Belarus region. So as I said, the variable is time and this variable depends upon the protest activity in Belarus. It looks like Lukashenko is left in the office in order to wear down protests. Russia does not want to be involved with the violence that is going on there. So Russia does not want to inherit this, this problem. If Lukashenko deals with the protests, then we may see Russia's very slow and gradual absorption of Belarus sovereignty. So let's move on now to talk a little bit about what this means for business. And, and we can do this on two levels. We can talk specifically about what it means for the foreign presence in and around Belarus, including in Russia as well, from a sanctions perspective and also, I guess, from the perspective of the optics and the reputational dimension. But then we can explode this really onto a global stage because in addition to what's happening in a specific country at a specific moment, this is part of a broader narrative, really. It's, it's a broader narrative of the remaining authoritarian regimes, their relationship with globalization, their relationship with businesses that come from more transparent jurisdictions, and the challenges that face companies and investors with a genuinely global footprint, but who have to be increasingly careful where they step. Who is going to be stepping into Belarus in the near future? If you're concerned about Belarus, are there other places around the world that you should be concerned about as well? So I think there are, I would say, three dimensions to the sort of immediate or short-term impact on the business environment. And the first is the security environment. As we've alluded to in the first four days or so following the election, we saw a level of unprecedented violence against not just protesters, but passers-by, any individuals out on the street effectively at night. That really took people by surprise. And there was no attempt to leave foreigners or people not directly involved in the anti-government movement out of this. And that's probably been the area in which we have seen the most immediate concern from our clients, because despite all its difficulties as an investment environment, Belarus traditionally was very predictable and stable from a security point of view, and the personal security of personnel was relatively secure. Second, of course, is the, the sanctions environment, which we can probably answer in a question on its own. As I alluded to, we don't currently see indications of trade sanctions or sanctions that would affect investments in state-owned companies, but this could certainly change as the situation evolves. And third, what we're seeing increasingly is interference and harassment in the business sector, in particular in the IT sector. The Belarusian IT sector is one of the big success stories of the last decade. It employs tens of thousands of people and thanks to tax incentives and other sort of attractive aspects of it has really been a beacon of economic growth in the last couple of years, contributed about 5% of GDP in 2018. And this sector in the last couple of weeks has seen a number of companies come under searches and raids. And in the last week, one tech company had four of its very senior employees arrested on charges of embezzlement, which are highly likely to be politically motivated. That reflects in part that the tech sector and tech sector employees have been probably among the more active and vocal in their condemnation of the violence meted out against protesters, but also actually the fact that the government is harassing and interfering in operations that even indirectly, from its point of view, facilitate anti-government activity. And of course, tech sector, whether it's data sharing or taxi apps, 
has been used widely by the protest movement, which, as Nabi mentioned earlier, has really been popping up in all sorts of different places and, and relied heavily on the internet. This really poses a significant threat, I think, to one of the few areas of significant growth in the economy. And we've heard a number of these large tech companies in the last couple of weeks say that they will have to move their investment elsewhere, normally to other Eastern European countries, if the situation doesn't improve. Bota, are you hearing anything from clients that thoughts about doing business in Russia are on hold or being reconsidered in anticipation of what may or may not happen as this crisis in Belarus unfolds? This is a pretty tricky question. The clients who were perhaps considering investing in a certain project in Russia are currently putting their plans on hold just to play it safe and to better see how the crisis is going to play out in the long term. I believe that the prospect of any new sanctions related to Belarus is something that is definitely on the minds of the clients a lot. And for that reason, it is likely to put many of their plans on hold. There's another interesting broader lesson for companies that operate in similarly autocratic environments, which are often believed to offer a pretty good degree of stability. The lesson here is that companies should not really be dismissing the possibility of an external shock that can trigger unprecedented political instability. And in this case, we are, of course, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, which I don't think any of us could have foreseen in the role that the pandemic has played in this seemingly stable environment. Nabi, let's go to you for the final word. You know, some of the interpretations of what's happening in Belarus have included quite a bit of sweep. And you hear people talking about the last gasp of dictatorship in Europe and, you know, the final act of the collapse of the Soviet Union and all kinds of grand words and phrases being thrown about. Tell us how you put this in context globally and what maybe companies and our clients should be thinking about to help place this in context as well. Globally, we indeed see the situation in which external forces cannot meddle and domestic opposition cannot get institutionalized. For so many years, Lukashenko was eliminating any potential competition. And that's where we are. We haven't external powers that are actually deciding the fate of Belarus, which is the EU and Russia. And the EU does not want to step in in order not to provoke Russian military intervention, because Putin made it very clear from the very beginning that any attempts to influence events externally will result in Russia intervening militarily. And in the meantime, Russia does not want to intervene not to invoke new wave of sanctions in a very unfortunate moment for the Kremlin, because we also have American elections and we are just going through the political crisis related to the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the largest opposition figure in Russia. We are seeing a situation in which leaderless opposition cannot actually sit at the negotiation table with the factor rulers. And there is no anyone who can guarantee that these people will be heard. This is a lesson for Russia as well. Russia may find itself in a situation in which its opposition will be leaderless, while the discontent with the powers will be big enough to drive thousands or tens of thousands of people onto the streets and do it for a long way, like we see in a Russian far eastern province of Khabarovsk. But in the meantime, 
the protests cannot be institutionalized, and that's why they will be dismissed, as uh, protests in Khabarovsk are being dismissed, and as demands of the protesters in Belarus are dismissed. It's a very difficult, if not like philosophical question, and this is something that our clients also need to be aware about. When we talk about countries and governments in a situation of a realist foreign policy, like Henry Kissinger used to say, if there is a people, give me the phone number that I can call them and ask what they want. Yeah. And try to negotiate with them. We are like Belarus in a situation when there is no phone number. Any political change is not possible because this protest cannot hang on water. It, it cannot hang on any strong institutions. It cannot hang on elites. The main difference between the protests in Ukraine, the Maidan, and the protests in Belarus is that Ukrainian elite was split and they were oligarchs. And these oligarchs wanted to do business and they wanted to do business with the West. When the protests began, Ukrainian elite cracked. There are no oligarchs of the Ukrainian type or Russian type in Belarus. And the elite does not show any visible, uh, serious cracks despite one month of the massive public protests there. Does that mean that we're going to see this just sort of go on and on and on? There are some options of either constitutional reform and perhaps new and more competitive elections. That doesn't sound very convincing, to be honest. We've got a cold Eastern European winter coming up. And I know that Belarusians are, are a hardy sort that can protest in any temperature. But do we just sort of wait and see? Or does the fact that this is a leaderless protest and the fact that one of the leaders is in exile in Lithuania at the moment, Tikhanovskaya herself, you know, where have we seen this before? Is there any precedent? Where is this going to go? A couple of thoughts on this. It is certainly leaderless, but there are some elements of it that I think still mean it can pose very big challenge to the authorities. I mean, the first is that, leaderless or not, basic trust in the president and in the state structures has declined so significantly as to, I think, make the traditional model on which these types of regimes rested, which is deprivation of liberties, but in exchange we secure your basic needs and ensure that basic goods are provided and so on, that's gone. And for Lukashenko to be able to hang on in any way, he would need to find a way to replace this or reinvigorate that trust that used to exist. And the second point was just about the strikes that have been an important element of this protest, which nobody saw coming, and not least actually the political opposition leaders, who I don't think have really taken advantage of that in the way they could have. But this allowed the movement to move beyond the kind of intelligentsia and the, the typical types of people we see protesting. And, and we saw, although they're really struggling to maintain momentum, but we have seen uh, strikes and, and worker walkouts at some of Belarus's most important uh, industries. So these elements, I think, to me, create a more dynamic environment and mean that even if it will struggle to really pose a long-term systemic challenge to the authoritarian rule, it creates new challenges, which they'll have to find a way to deal with if they want to hang on. Perhaps we should end it there and draw another episode of The Global Insight to a close. Let me just say a very big thank you to my colleagues who have dialed in and been very generous with their time for the podcast. Bota in Moscow, thank you very, very much for joining the conversation. Pleasure. Thank you. Emir here in London. Keep in touch. Thanks a lot, Chuck. 
And Nabi, uh, continue to hold down the fort in Moscow, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Joe. We will. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how Control Risks is helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you very much for listening again. Bye for now.